Welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga, a podcast for the body, heart, and mind. We have one of my very dear and close friends, Lauren Sparks, with us today, and we're going to talk about suffering and the Enneagram. Lauren is an Enneagram 2. She has a master's degree in narrative therapy. She also has a doctorate degree as a nurse practitioner. She is a wise soul, but also one of the most loving people I've ever met in my whole life. And that's going to shine through in this interview. You're going to love it. Thanks for joining us. I'm just going to go ahead and get started. So welcome, Lauren, to Enneagram Plus Yoga. Lauren is a friend of mine of, I don't know, 10 years or more, and uh, just a really, really close friend. Uh, I think she's landed on Enneagram 2. She was looking between 2 and 4 for a while and finally landed at the two like me. So love that. It explains why we get along so well, right? (laughs) Um, But again, we're so glad that you're here. And just knowing you, you have been through the experience of suffering. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, But I wanted to get started with Kat asking you a question, and then we'll delve deeper into your story. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, uh, we're just going to be true to our form and start heavy and and deep right out of the gate. (laughs) So could you tell us about a few times in your life that has been deep experiences of suffering, whatever you're comfortable to share? Sure, Kat. I like heavy and deep. (laughs) I get bored with on the surface, so I like that we're jumping in there. Um, When I thought about it, my first um, real experience with with suffering, I would say, was in my mid-20s. Like Christy said, I've landed on the Enneagram 2, and for the first time in my life, I really felt seen by another human being, right? And then that human being left me, and I was devastated after the loss of that relationship. It was emotional suffering and I didn't know how to grieve the loss. I didn't have anyone to show me how to grieve that loss. So I just sort of ran from it for many years. Um, I think my second, well, I don't think I know (laughs) my second experience with suffering involves physical pain. I was a healthy, active person in my mid-30s, and it seemed just out of nowhere I was challenged with this difficulty in walking, Um, and it would take many surgeries and many years to get an accurate diagnosis for what was going on, Um, but it turned out I had this rare disease called erythromyalgia, um, and it's nicknamed Burning Man Syndrome because it affects um, parts of your body, mostly, usually your hands and feet, um, but they heat up to the point of feelings if you're literally burning alive. Um, And treatment options are really poor. Um, Pain meds don't help because it's a condition that uh, affects the nerves. Um, And so for me, this was deep, (laughs) deep suffering, physical suffering. You know, I went from being a person that ran marathons to a person that bathed sitting on a shower chair. I got around on a scooter. Um, I couldn't tolerate standing on my feet um, to do any of the things that I used to enjoy. Um, And it was just day after day, this quest to find sort of an inch of comfort, um, an inch of relief. 
And then the disease process moved into my hands. So I lost the ability to like do activities of daily living, like cooking for myself or fixing my own hair. Um, and then I think it was a real um, loss to lose the ability to paint because that's something I love. Um, so with this disease process, it just felt as if everything that I love, everything that made me me <laughs> was slowly being taken from me. Um, and one in four people with my disease process will take their own life um, due to the pain. And as a nurse, I had taken care of a lot of people challenged with pain, but having pain invade my own body totally changed my understanding of pain. Um, and I'm really open about the fact, I'm now open about the fact um, that there are many days I just kept living for my family. Um, and sadly, I kept this secret from people that I love for me for a long time. I sort of protected them <laughs> from my suffering, which I think we'll probably dive more into later, but that added a whole another layer of suffering on top of the, the physical suffering. Holy wow. How are you feeling now? Amazingly and thankfully, um, I'm a lucky person whose disease has gone into complete remission. Um, so I um, now treat the disease that uh, I was so challenged with. Yeah. Fantastic news. So managing it now and being foresee that you are able to manage it for years to come without it flaring up? Yeah, I don't have any fear that it will come back. I used um, functional medicine to get at sort of the root cause of what was driving my disease process and thankfully was able to find that root cause. And being a medical provider myself, treat it. And um, I don't have any fear that uh, the erythromyalgia will return. I go into 180 degree saunas. I used to not be able to tolerate taking a shower. Um, and I've been in remission about a year and a half. So, uh, that fear of, of the erythromyalgia returning is not something that's really present for me right now. Yeah. But just for our listeners to know, you went through this for over five years. I mean, yeah. yeah pain and all the surgeries and how many surgeries did you go through three different surgeries yeah 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 so a lot of pain and suffering and um I'm not sure why pain and suffering happens I don't pretend to to have the answer to that really big question um some people think it happens so that we can grow I'm not convinced of that um, but inevitably transformation can be a byproduct of suffering. So can you tell me how has your suffering helped you to grow? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with your philosophy or your questions around um, pain and suffering. Um, I don't believe that suffering happens so we can learn a lesson. Um, I think I believed that before this happened to me on, on some level. Um, and I think through my suffering, I, I determined if that is what God was dishing out, then that wasn't a God for me. Um, I believe suffering happens because life with all of its beauty also has hardship and grief and loss and pain and no one escapes those things. Um, I, how has my suffering helped me to grow? Um, 
I'd say it's invited me into growth and it took me a long time to accept that invitation. <laughs> I think sometimes uh, when you're in the midst of suffering, the work of suffering is suffering. Um, and, and, and so eventually I feel like I was able to step into that uh, growth, but the suffering had to come before the growth. Um, I think, and I think that initially it was just surrendering to that suffering, to really allowing myself to feel the pain and the grief of all the losses instead of pushing it away. Um, so it taught me how to grieve. I, like I said, with that loss of that relationship and that initial experience of being seen, I didn't know how to grieve that. Um, being the person I am today, I would I would honor that in a much different way. I, I wouldn't run from it nearly as much. Um, it taught me how to embrace my anger um, instead of uh, fear it. Um, it taught me what it feels like to stay connected um, to what I call my small voice. Um, and it took me into a deeper place of compassion for other people. I've always been a, a very empathetic person. Many years of my life, I was a hospice nurse. That's how I met Christy. Um, but it took me, it allowed me access into a deeper um, place of empathy where I feel like I'm better at sort of companioning people in their suffering instead of moving into the two role of trying to fix it. <laughs> um, I, I would say those are the main things that my suffering has invited me into. Yeah, that, that idea of being with people knee deep in their suffering, but not trying to fix it is a nice distinction that you can journey with, but, but not take on the role of fixing, which as you know, Enneagram twos, we, we do try to do that. Um, so I love that. And, I, and, and before you even went through the suffering, you were a deeply empathetic person because we did work together at hospice where I was a hospice chaplain and, and counselor and you were a, a hospice nurse. And so I saw you overflowing with empathy even then, but, but it deepened your sympathy um, and empathy in even more ways. And then I also hear that it helps you to know how to grieve and to feel the pain of life, which is sometimes hard for twos that we can be, you know, Pollyanna-like and, and feel the joy of life more easily, but to feel the anger and to get in touch with that and to also feel the grief and the sadness and the despair of all of it is important that I, I hear you saying you had to learn how to suffer first before you could see some of the the silver lining of, of learning something from this experience. Yeah, thank you. That was really powerful. Um, really, really enjoy that. Um, as you were talking too, I was also thinking about comparative suffering. And I, and I think about what's happening in the Ukraine right now. And for somebody who just got a cancer diagnosis or is going through a job loss or whatever else they might say, but my, my suffering isn't as big as what they're going through right now. Can you speak to comparative suffering at all? Why we should be careful of that? Comparative suffering is so interesting to me. Um, and really a group member, I run support groups for people with my disease process and she invited me into to thinking more about comparative suffering. Um, but I realized, Christine, I don't know if this is your experience with hospice, 
there is no great, well, there are a few greater comparisons to, um, well, at least I'm not dying. I don't have a terminal diagnosis. Like, <laughs> how could, how could we compete with that? Right. And so um, I, I think I sort of spent, you know, many of my earlier years um, not allowing myself to go into my suffering or not validating my own suffering because my suffering wasn't as great as the suffering I witnessed on a daily basis in the work that I did. Um, now I, I realize that uh, the, the worst suffering is your own suffering, <laughs> no matter what that suffering is. And it's really in being really willing to inhabit our own suffering that we can go deep with other people into their suffering, whatever that may be. And when we're pushing away our own suffering, I think we'll inevitably feel uncomfortable or afraid um, to go with somebody into the, those places of their own suffering. So I would imagine that you have similar thoughts about comparative um, suffering, but comparison in general, I find is just not very helpful <laughs> for human beings. And yet it's so attractive because we can, we can compare up and we can compare down. And so even within our own disease processes, um, people in my group will look at people who are worse off and say, at least it's not that bad. But on the flip side, oh my gosh, it could get that bad, right? <laughs> so I think there's often not comfort in comparison, even though we seek comfort there. Well said. Well, what we've decided that we're going to do today with you is to look at how each of the nine types of the Enneagram might experience suffering um, or push it away. And, um, and then we're going to ask you some questions related to each number on the Enneagram. Does that sound, sound good to you? <laughs> All right, perfect. All right, well, Kat's going to get us started. Yeah, so Lauren, usually we divide and conquer and I take the odds and Christy takes the even. So <laughs> I'm going to kick it off with one and I'm Enneagram one, as, as you know. So a one, the perfectionist, might become judgmental and critical to themselves or others in the midst of pain and suffering. And I can definitely relate to that. They also may become controlling and start to become overly concerned with ordering what feels disordered in order to feel a sense of control over, let's say, their child having a, a disease. And um, I know for a fact that that could be something that a one could deal with, at least that was my experience. So my youngest got diagnosed with a really rare genetic disorder called Barty Beetle syndrome when he was eight months old, and it was unexpected, and it was a shock, and it was a sort of loss of any kind of world that we were building around parenthood and having a kid. And to your point, the comparative suffering, you know, um, it, it, the, 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 the disorder comes with many really rough symptoms. And then we were told, well, at least you don't have the life expectancy as one of them. And I'll be frank with you, it did not lessen the suffering, it just added the shame. Mm -hmm. Because not only did we, you know, not had lesser pain, but then we were ashamed because, oh my gosh, there's parents who are having kids and they 
you know, have a timeline. At least we don't. So that's the comparative suffering. I absolutely agree with you. It doesn't lessen your own. But when things sort of go out of control and you suffer, I think for one, uh, taking the control back or at least having something to control, bring some normalcy into the process of suffering. And that definitely has happened with me. So in the midst of suffering, there are two ways to do things, their way and the wrong way. And for one, the shadow side is anger and it might get um, into, you know, transition to aggression um, in the midst of suffering. So the air of stress for one is a low side of four. And that means that uh, one could feel as a victim or compare the suffering or go into a really depressed, melancholy, you know, I cannot get out of bed kind of, kind of way. So um, what advice would you have to someone who is being hard on themselves or others in the midst of their suffering? Because the question is, why am I being punished? Why, why, why me? And I'm so just, you know, I must have done something to deserve it, you know? Oh, Kat, thank you. <laughs> thank you for, well, for your vulnerability and talking about your own um, suffering. And one thing I do want to get into later is people who give us easy answers, because I think that is such a challenge in the midst of suffering. Um, yeah, and the, que the qu question, why me? How can we not wrestle with that? And then I think there's even shame attached to wrestling with that. Um, so what advice would I give to someone who's being hard on themselves? Um, I think contrary to popular belief, there's not a right way to suffer. Um, <laughs> there's only your way. And um, I have a strong perfectionist streak in me. Um, I have a one wing. Um, I also think I inherited part of that. Um, I think there's a long line of perfectionism and <laughs> in the feminine energy in my family. Um, and so prior to my physical illness, I had noticed that and I had sort of adopted this phrase with my niece to try to interrupt that perfectionist streak that seemed to run in our family. And so I had this phrase that I would say to her, like, why be perfect? Um, and so for instance, if we made some mistake, uh, instead of sort of apologizing, uh, we, we just throw our hands up and be like, why be perfect? Um, and so it was a way to sort of be playful um, with our perfectionism. <laughs> and then when I got sick and was in the middle of grad school, um, the amount of brain space that my physical pain took up was just so incredible. And um, there was no way that I was going to make it through school if I held on to my perfectionism. I'm like, my perfectionism had to die. <laughs> and so my new motto became good enough is good enough. I mean, and it was like, get this task done. Good enough is good enough. Um, so for those being hard on themselves, I'd invite them to a sort of anti-perfectionism stance. Um, I'd invite them into their enoughness and this um, expansive feeling of enoughness that's not based on achieving. Uh, and boy, is that a tough pill to swallow if you have a perfectionist streak. Um, and then I think 
of those um, that are hard on others in the midst of their suffering? I don't know, but I would sort of posit that they're as hard on others um, or they're harder on themselves than they are even on others. Um, I'd guess that their suffering may feel unseen in some way, or it may feel invalidated in some way. Um, I'd guess that they haven't felt sort of safe enough to express their anger and, or sadness in regards to everything that they've lost. Um, when we're able to sort of encourage and, and um, give permission to and soften towards our own suffering, um, then we soften towards others. Um, so with people that are being hard on other people, I'd still say gentleness is the way, like gentleness is always the way. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's look at the Enneagram too. So the Enneagram too, which is who you are and I am, the helpers are under stress or suffering, or when they're under stress or suffering, they go to the low side of the eight. So they start to look like unhealthy eights when they're in a place of suffering sometimes. So they might be challenging, especially to the people that they love the most. If their partner or close friends are suffering, they may go into helping mode at the expense of themselves. Um, and twos, of course, always need to practice self-love and self-care they especially need to do this in the midst of suffering. And again, I want to say that that is whether you're suffering or whether somebody you love is suffering, because the two can quickly go under and, and fall flat on their face if they're trying to help their loved one who's sick. Um, and then two go to bed and they wake up in the morning thinking about relationships. And so if suffering is in the midst of divorce or the ending of a partnership, it's going to be very painful for any of the nine types, but especially for a two, because it's almost like this is the personality that is relationships at all costs. And so when a relationship doesn't work out, it's even more devastating for a two. And so the shadow side of the two is pride. And sometimes this pride is the idea that they can handle their suffering alone. Like, I've got this. I don't need anybody else's help. That's like the kind of mantra of the, <laughs> the two in an unhealthy place. I don't need other people. So asking for what they need is big for twos and sufferings. Um, saying to their friends and being vulnerable, like, I'm going through a really hard time. That's something we have to work on as twos. So acknowledging our own sufferings. And then also I was talking a little bit ago about the Pollyanna piece for the two. Um, and that's a big piece because we love to help other people with their pain. I mean, look at us. We went into this occupation of working for hospice for a long time. Um, and then, you know, we're very comfortable with helping other, with others with hardship and pain and um, end of life issues. But, but to kind of look at our own pain, even our own mortality, that can be harder for a two. Um, so that's uh, a, a thing that a two has to be very careful of is your pain matters as well. Okay, so I've got, since this is the two question, I've got two questions in one. So how do you encourage your clients to ask for what they need in the midst of their suffering? And what do people need in the midst of their suffering? So I'll preface it by saying, I'm not really sure what people need. I can tell you what is helpful for me um, or what was helpful for me. And 
so I'll start with, and this is in hindsight. <laughs> I think the way for someone to know what they need in the midst of suffering is to fight to stay connected to that small voice within whatever they call it, God, love, whatever. Um, and, and pain and suffering uh, really, I think, invites us into this connection um, from that voice. On, uh, my experience is it can invite us, invite us into deep connection with that small voice, but it more often, when it, especially when it's a long drawn out suffering, can invite us into disconnection. Um, when we're suffering, what we need changes from day to day. It can change from hour to hour. <laughs> and yeah. so I think like really going within and looking um, for what the right next step is for us on any given day um, can be really helpful. And, and so to make it more tangible, like the right next step to me feels like what feels light and free when I think about it in my body as opposed to what makes me feel more heavy or constricted. Um, I listen for like this tiny yes <laughs> as opposed to that subtle no that you can feel. Um, and a good example of it is I went to visit my niece um, probably five years ago and I gave her some choices as to what we could do that day. And she was like, oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do. And I really wanted her to encourage, encourage her to begin to listen to that voice within. So, you know, I told her to close her eyes and I described going to the art museum and, and asked her like what that felt like in her body. And then I described Chuck E. Cheese. And then I asked what that felt like in her body. And then I asked her, you know, which one was her body saying yes to? And she was immediately like, Chuck E. Cheese, <laughs> you know? And I think she was sort of erring towards the art museum because she knows I love art and, and that would be pleasing to me, right? Um, I think when we are suffering, it can be so tempting to turn to experts for answers. I mean, we're just desperate not to be suffering. Um, and I think it can be helpful to get experts' opinions, but I think it can also be disempowering if we don't stay committed to sort of listening for our own truth. Um, and then um, asking for what we need is a whole nother challenge, especially <laughs> for givers who often struggle to receive. I think that was a huge um, gift in my suffering was learning to receive, but it was also a huge struggle. Um, I think we grow when we ask for what we need. I think we have to sit with the discomfort of asking. Um, we sort of have to ask anyway <laughs> and trust and hope that it'll get easier with time. You know, each time we ask for what we need that and sit with that discomfort that will become more familiar with, um, with that. Um, and I think when we're doing that, we have to gauge our success, um, not by the other person's response or willingness to meet that need necessarily, but just, uh, celebrate the sheer fact that we ask. It's a big flipping deal for a two to, <laughs> to ask for what they need. Right. Um, and I think we grow when we allow ourselves, uh, to need, you know, like no man is an Island. Although I think sometimes, the two in me would like to be. Um, in needing others, you know, we express vulnerability and we do surrender this sort of um, pride. And, you know, when I'm 
in um, a healthy place, I know that this life thing was never meant, uh, I was never meant to do it alone. <laughs> I was never meant to be an island. And then I think it's important to kind of say, in the midst of suffering, especially deep suffering, if a person isn't connected to what they need or able to say what they need, um, I think I learned from my suffering, they don't need easy answers. Like what Kat was saying, how this person, you know, offered her a platter of comparative suffering in relation to what happened to her son. Um, I've been offered many of those and they're generally unhelpful. And I think that it's hard because I think people are struggling on their own with why these things have happened to us. Um, but I think swallowing those easy answers, um, I think if you've spent 10 minutes researching a magical fix for your friend's illness, you can guarantee they've spent 10 days <laughs> or 10 years. So sort of swallowing that and instead choosing to companion them um, in their suffering. I think offering these platitudes, um, when God closes the door, he opens a window or God needed another angel in heaven. You know, like when you've really been through suffering, these things in my experience, aren't comforting. Um, they're painful. And then I think trusting this person who's suffering to make their own meaning um, of their suffering. Um, I had people who really loved me. I know they love me deeply, who offered me um, reasons for why I had this disease process. Like I ran too much or I partied too hard in college. Um, and there were plenty of people I saw running around and partying who didn't have erythromalacia. So it didn't make sense to me, <laughs> but it, um, it felt shameful. Um, it felt like I was being blamed for my own disease process. Um, and so I think instead of trying to make meaning for people to kind of take their suffering and hand it back to them in a nice shiny package, um, we need to trust that they're going to make their own meaning and their own time and that that meaning might not make a whole lot of sense to us. <laughs> yeah. um, and what they really just need is to be accompanied on their journey. The, the journeying with again. And, and we did see a lot of that working with hospice together. You know, well, God just needed another angel or everything happens for a reason. And if anything, even if you do believe that, that's not something I believe, but even if you do believe that, um, be really careful with that because that, that can quickly diminish somebody else's own suffering. And it can also make them, like you said, feel a lot of shame. Yeah. You know, whenever you're trying to tie something into a bow and make mm -hmm. something pretty, it's also because of your own discomfort sometimes with pain and suffering, um, but it's also not allowing that person to feel the anger, the sadness, and all of that. So that was beautifully said, Lauren. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. Okay, we're moving to threes for our achievers. So achiever might appear to be doing better than a lot of times during suffering because they want to present an image that they're doing well and they're not failing. And because they're very adaptable, they can be very good in the midst of suffering, stress, or crisis situation. So for a three, the air of stress is going to a nine. And that means that sometimes a three could start shutting down or get depressed or even disengage like a nine in stress would. 
this also might look like, um, you know, sitting on the couch watching too much TV or not getting out of bed or not showering and not really caring about how they look, which is very unusual for a three. Mm-hmm. Also, they might practice the shadow side of the three by deceiving others about their suffering. So, you know, example would be that they would just pretend like it's not happening or hide it or lie about it instead of allowing people to kind of walk alongside with them. And they also might overfunction in the midst of the suffering. So tons of work, go, 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 never stopping, mm-hmm. um, you know, not skipping a beat. So since the three has a propensity to be workaholic, under stress, this can really impact their relationships. And in my personal opinion, I think there's few things in life that can kind of make or break relationship. There are certain things in life, experiences that you can't really stay in neutral in terms of your relationships. It's either going to grow and get stronger or it goes away. And suffering is one of those. So speaking of relationships, how, in your opinion, does suffering impact our relationships? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree with you, Kat, that suffering is, uh, man, how does it not impact our relationships? I think when we're the ones suffering, it's hard for us to see how our suffering impacts those around us. I think it can also invite shame into our lives so we can push away (laughs) and try not to see it. Um, And I think suffering is such a conundrum in many ways because I think there's something solitary about suffering. Um, I think we need people to accompany us in our pain and yet it is our pain. And like, I I heard someone recently say that no one can labor for a birthing mother. And I think about how no one can suffer our losses for us. Um, And so for this reason, I think even um, when we're really well supported, suffering can feel really lonely. (laughs) It just can. I believe that speaking about our suffering aloud um, to safe people and having that received is is really deeply healing. Um, I I think it's helpful too in relationship to remember that no one person can meet all of our needs when we're suffering, right? So um, we can take comfort in one person's willingness to do the grunt work of cooking a meal for us, and we can take comfort in another friend's willingness to accompany us into our deep suffering and have hard conversations. Um, both offerings are love. Um, they just uh, just love with different stripes, I guess is what I would say. Um, and we can forgive people when they get it terribly wrong. Um, and we can see that their um, missteps as ways that they're trying to love us. Um, like when I think about those hurtful things that were said to me, like your disease happened because of this, um, I get that it was people just trying to make make sense of my suffering and um, they loved me and they were struggling to make their own meaning out of it. And so, um, choosing not to just hear the hurtful words, <laughs> but sort of looking for the intent underneath it. That doesn't mean we don't have conversations about the hurtful words, right? Um, and I also think it's deeply healing and, and has the added bonus of taking pressure off of some of our primary support people when we find others who have suffered in similar ways. Um, 
I think that people that have been challenged in sim similar ways, even if they're initially strangers, they have this ability to accompany us in ways that even the most loving family members and friends sometimes um, can't. Um, and I don't, uh, I was trained to believe that I could be really helpful in helping almost anyone. <laughs> And, and that's not how I practice anymore. Um, I've had many of my own losses, um, but not, for instance, I haven't suffered a loss of an infant. And so I have the wisdom now due to my own unique suffering to know um, when I receive uh, inquiry to refer that person to someone I think can really accompany them well <laughs> through that um, loss. So Finding our tribe, people wounded in the same way or similar ways uh, when suffering, I think is a gift we should consider giving ourselves. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and sometimes not only does the suffering, I think, you know, uh, affect the current relationships that we have, but to your point, like when I, you know, my mom passed away unexpectedly when I was really young. And then the diagnosis of my youngest, I, I really just wanted to be around and talk to the people who has gone through the same thing that somehow felt comforting to me. So as a result, I kind of got new relationships, people that I would have never connected with ever, but hearing people experiencing the same experience, maybe in different way, but the same thing happened to them, provided immense amount of comfort. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Conundrum is the word. And I think with the Enneagram, understanding that certain personalities really push down pain and suffering more than others. I mean, particularly the seven the eight and the three. I mean, they have a really hard time. Like I said earlier, twos do as well, but those are the three types that really disown the heart space if they're not careful. Thinking back to my own infertility, um, when my husband and I were going through that and you know, trying for over seven years to get pregnant, he really had a hard time entering the suffering. Um, and he's a three, right? And so that makes a lot of sense. And so I did have some compassion knowing that he's more stoic than I am and that facing that infertility and pain meant facing the fact that he might not have a child and that that was really important to him. And, and so, you know, he didn't respond to it in the way that I did. And so I did have to turn to some other people to kind of face that pain not that I was totally alone in it he was with me in it but he couldn't kind of go into the depths of that suffering as deeply as I did and so having some compassion for him as a three and knowing that getting into the heart space is harder for him I think that's really really important um so just something to to think about um if you have a a three or seven or eight in your life um, but let's go to the fours. And speaking of the fours, I know you have a four in your life. Your husband is a four. <laughs> um, and so we'll shout out to Ryan because I know and love your husband, Ryan. But fours, the individualist, are usually comfortable with suffering than the average person. They know how to feel the pain of life, which is a gift. On the other hand, uh, they can get lost in their feelings and swept up in the vortex of the complexities of all of their emotions. 
Um, in fact, suffering can sometimes become their identity. And so in the midst of suffering, sometimes other types um, experience force to be playing the victim card, you know, if they're, especially if they're kind of in an average or unhealthy space. Um, and stress force go to the low side of the two, so they can be clingy, they can be needy, um, they can be resentful of other people for not appreciating them enough for all the things that they do for others. Um, fours also have the shadow side of envy, and so comparison um, is something that may show up when they're suffering. Um, so my question for you is fours are so good at feeling their feelings but this can really lead themselves to see themselves as victims. So how do you help to affirm clients' feelings, but also help them maybe to be careful not to fall into a victim mentality, if you even can do that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I struggle with this question, and I am not an Enneagram expert, so hopefully you guys will also offer your take. But So let me explain my struggle. Um, I think I'm a broken record in saying like, I think the most helpful thing that we can do is accompany a person into their suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if I worry about them falling into the victim mentality or even judge that they have, I believe I've lost that most important piece of sort of journey, journeying alongside and I'm married to a four and he is constantly teaching me to go deep into feeling and my God, it can be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I constantly fight the desire to say to look around you know like hey look around there's so much to be grateful for right like right. Um, so I would guess and again I don't know that the Enneagram like you do um that at some point most fours have had very valid pain that was invalidated mm -hmm. or that maybe they're louder about their suffering because their cries went unheard um, when they were young. Um, so I might have a controversial take on suffering and the victim mentality, but I guess what I would do if I'm being honest is I would aim to like go deep with the person into their suffering. Um, this can be scary to be frank, um, but I, I guess because of my own disease process, I, I have to trust where their pain is taking us. Um, and the goal of walking beside them would be to allow them to grieve, or to invite them into grieving their losses. Um, because it's my experience that people who can grieve rarely get stuck in a victim mentality. Um, and so I think the real, the real work for me not for my client, but for me, or really anyone I think who is sitting with someone in suffering is to sit with the discomfort I have about their suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would say too, um, and, and just for our listeners to know, Lauren has a master's in narrative uh, therapy, and she also uh, has a doctorate as a nurse practitioner. So her practice is very complimentary. She's treating people physically, but she's also treating their emotional needs. So I just want our listeners to know that. But also for me as a marriage and family therapist, I, I agree like a hundred percent if somebody's grieving, go into the grief, like meet them and their suffering, feel that pain. Um, but eventually if somebody's really, really stuck, 
in grief and people can get stuck in grief. I've like definitely had clients before and sometimes gently, and this is intuitive. It like, it doesn't like, there's no prescription or way to do it. But if I feel like intuitively that I might bring up, you know, what are the times that you don't feel suffering and to ask them to really look for that. And that's mindfulness. And that's kind of paying attention to life to, to see the beauty of life. And, and could she maybe do a little more of that? And, you know, and talk, talking with people about gratitude. And so I'm not saying I have a specific way that I do this, but sometimes if I do feel like somebody's really stuck in their suffering, which can happen with Enneagram force, um, then I start to ask some questions to help them to notice when they're not suffering. Um, and, and so that's the only thing I would offer. And, and I may not do that with every person because we're all just so different and unique. Um, but that's one thought about helping somebody who might have a little bit of that victim mentality and be stuck in just the darkness of life and, and not seeing maybe what is good. Any thoughts that you have as I say that? I've, it just, it reminded me, and I, it may be a little off topic, but it reminded me as I was contemplating um, this discussion and really thinking about suffering and my journey and, and being with people and suffering that I came into it as a nurse and I had, like, I took care of the physical body. And I also, of course, as a hospice nurse accompanying people in their grief related to their death, but I was not trained in this. It was just intuitive, but it really wasn't accompanying of, of a person. And I think what I really began to appreciate about you, Christy, is that from a very young age, you were in a role as, you know, like a chaplain mm -hmm. where people were asking you for answers. Like yeah. no one was asking me for answers. And I trained as a therapist much later in life than you did. Um, and I, I learned being a medical professional is very different um, than being a therapist or a chaplain, someone who a person turns to for answers <laughs> mm -hmm. as opposed to just um, someone who attends to the physical body and accompanies a person on this journey. So it really gave me an appreciation for your bravery um, and stepping into that, that role. I thought about becoming a therapist much earlier in life and I didn't feel wise enough. Um, now I know I'm, I'm helping people access their, their own wisdom in a lot of ways and our wisdom can be beneficial so I see that error in that thinking but I just think it was so brave of you to go into the work you did at such a young age <laughs> well thank you I um I'm grateful that I got to go into it because our clients are our teachers a lot and so I've, I've learned a lot from those who have suffered and those um that I've journeyed with but this episode is brought to you by Shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Next week, you'll get to hear the rest of this great interview with Lauren 
but stay tuned for our meditation, which will be right after this word from our sponsor. For our meditation today, we're going to start with our hand at our heart, breathing in, breathing out, finding your inhale, and then the exhale. Starting to quiet the mind through the breath, in and out. Maybe the eyes soften and close. Maybe they stay open. Take a moment to see where the pain resides in your body. Where is there tension? Where is there pain? Breathing in. Exhale, send the breath to that place in the body. Acknowledging and befriending your pain. Inhale. Exhale, sending the breath to that pain. And then take a moment to think of somebody in your life who's experiencing pain and suffering. Find a breath in. Exhale, send them love and grace. Again, see this person in your mind's eye who's experiencing suffering. Inhale. Exhale, send them love and compassion. And then think of a country in the world where there's pain and suffering. Find a breath in. Exhale, sending them love. Find a breath in. Exhale, offering them a prayer or a word of peace. Breathing in. Breathing out. Knowing it's so important to acknowledge our own pain and the pain and suffering of others. May we take moments to befriend our pain to be kind to ourselves, and may we also offer this kindness to those in our midst. Namaste.